We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined today by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Thanks for having me. And we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday morning, receiving her first shot of the locally produced Medigen coronavirus vaccine. Now, Monday was the first day the domestic vaccine was administered, and Tsai got her jab at the National Taiwan University College of Medicine's gymnasium. And before leaving the vaccination site, well, she had photos taken, standing by signs promoting the vaccination campaign. However, former KMT and new party lawmaker Zhao Xiaokang tried to pour cold water on size getting the jab and he made the rather lofty and wholly unsubstantiated claim that she had visited the American Institute in Taiwan in April to receive two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and Zhao went on to demand that she take an antibody test and announce the results. That request was backed by several KMT lawmakers but needless to say Zhao's claim made headlines in certain media outlets while it was derided in others and described as yet another KMT conspiracy theory. Now the central Epidemic Command Centre says 167,000 people received the first dose of the Medigen vaccine on Monday and on Tuesday they announced that it plans to offer a second dose of the locally developed vaccine from September the 27th. However, it wasn't all good news for the Medigen vaccine as the Central Epidemic Command Centre has reported that four people have died after receiving the first jab. Now officials say an autopsy has now determined the cause of death in the first individual reported to have passed away after receiving receiving the domestically developed vaccine and autopsies on the other three people who died shortly after receiving the jab have yet to be carried out. And the health minister is stressing that the epidemic command centre has to wait for the final autopsy results to determine whether the vaccine led directly to the death of the four people as there is currently no indication of causal relationship. Now the vaccine doses administered to the four individuals belong to different production batches. Now interestingly enough figures show that a total of 660 people have died after receiving a coronavirus us vaccine here. 540 of them were recipients of the AstraZeneca vaccine and 119 had received the Moderna vaccine. And the Epidemic Command Centre says that autopsy reports have shown no links that any of those deaths and the vaccines were related in a majority of cases. However, the cause of six deaths is still undetermined. Now, currently about 40% of Taiwan's population of 23.5 million people have gotten a first vaccine shot and less than 3% have received the two shots needed to be fully vaccinated. Now, there's been talk of when Taiwan will open its borders fully to the outside world, but experts have been saying that the island will need a nationwide vaccination rate of at least 60% of the population to achieve herd immunity in order to safely reopen, while the government's saying that its goal is to ensure that 70% of the population receive at least one vaccine dose by the end of this year, which would translate into 16.4 million people. So, Ross, President Tsai Ing-wen had the jab on Monday. Vice President William Lai had the jab this morning and um, some people have put the jab down and there's concern that uh, maybe it's not safe but it, it looks on par with other vaccine doses but the government is saying that the deaths haven't sort of led to people cancelling their appointments to get the jab of the Medigen vaccine. 
Oh, a few, a few issues arise there. One, uh, I'll compliment the, the logistics aspect because this is something that we previously had concerns about and the concerns arose because the government was so slow in acquiring vaccines. Then you know, there, were, there were some challenges with, with the rollout of the online booking system, but, but you know, all that part seems behind us. So, you know, on the logistics side and you know, the, the speed at which uh, a large number of people can be injected with the vaccine on, on day one of its use or, or any other vaccines that are available in Taiwan as well. And it's, it's good to see that, that the logistics side, the infrastructure for administering the vaccines uh, from the central government down to the local government levels, that seems to be operating pretty smoothly. Uh, unfortunately, we're still not up to the, the case where in the United States, you could just walk into a large number of different kinds of options right now, whether it's a doctor's office or, or one of the big chain pharmacies or the big box stores uh, like, like Walmarts that, that you know, now offer vaccination. So I, I think, uh, who knows, maybe by the time I my number comes up to get vaccinated, because I haven't been vaccinated yet, I won't have to go to the hospital or there's some stadium or, the, or some other big arena that's uh, been taken over by a hospital like President Tsai went to. Uh, and speaking of President Tsai, look, the whole thing was, was part of a big photo op as well. Uh, I mean, part of that is just to encourage people to use the vaccine, so that's understandable. Part of it is uh, uh, a la President Trump. Right? I mean, President Tsai wants some credit for uh, a locally made vaccine, right? And, uh, you know, so she brought all the cameras, asked some questions to the nurses. Uh, you know, the, uh, one media report I read said she showed them her Jambalka, her national health insurance card, which I think is a bit ridiculous because who doesn't know that this is the president? I mean, did, did the people working there really not know that this this, this individual is, is Tsai Ing-wen? So she still had to swipe her card like the rest of us. Uh, so, you know, from the PR side, I guess the, those goals were achieved. You know, what Zhao Xiaokong said is probably not going to get much traction. Uh, maybe President Tsai will sue him. We'll, we'll see. Uh, but you know, the, the questions about, about the vaccine, those are legitimate questions. If, if four people uh, tragically died in the, in the first uh, few days after taking it, and yeah, look, the government and, and certain media, they rushed to promote uh, different data points uh, to say that the other vaccines are more dangerous. You're more likely to die with the other ones um, and, and not the, the metagen. But, but you can't just look at the headline numbers as well. Right? And there's been a lot of experts who've been in the media in the last day pointing out that you have to look at uh, you know, some other factors like the, the demographics or the, or the age groups of, of most of the people who took the vaccine and how that might differ and whether that's a factor in, in the larger number of deaths, for example, with the AZ versus versus the, the metagen. But it's, it's up to the manufacturer and it's up to the government to make the case that this is safe uh, or, or what we've talked about in the past and more of a concern for, for me and I think a lot of people is not, not that it's unsafe, but is, is it effective? And I think that leads to the questions, um, and there are also legitimate questions about the process by which it was approved for use. That, you know, that process... You know, clearly, because I, I think we should, we should trust the authorities, you know, it clearly says it's not dangerous for you, but is it as effective as the other vaccines? And, and I think the, 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 the people who, who passed away, I think it's going to feed into that. We'll see if there's going to be some hesitancy or some people who are switching. I mean, the numbers were good for the number of people who, want, who, who did receive the Medigen, but uh, there are a lot of no-shows as well, as media have been pointing out. So people do have some concerns about it still. So. 
So that's right. I mean, Thai being vaccinated with Medigen, uh, part of it is to take credit. Uh, part of it also just because of the fact that Thai had staked so much of her political credibility on this. Uh, in gambling on domestic vaccines at a time in which Taiwan is experiencing shortages, as with other countries in the world. Um, if this is successful, this would be considered possibly a major accomplishment. If this is able to alleviate these backlog issues of vaccinations, if this is able to get Taiwan vaccinated, and if, for example, this becomes a vaccine that can be distributed internationally as a, a sign of Taiwanese soft power or medical capacity internationally, uh, adding to the reputation of Taiwan for fighting off COVID-19. And so it makes sense to make this uh, into a photo op. Um, Chen Shidong, for example, set up one of the press briefings a few days earlier that Thai specifically wants it to be vaccinated at the NTU uh, vaccination site because of the fact that she wants to be vaccinated like the common people will. And I think this is true of William Lai as well and other politicians. Um, it's not surprising that McCain T would attack this. I think what's quite interesting is actually Zhao Shaokang and someone like him will make these conspiratorial accusations against Medigen. But at the same time, from Pamzhu politicians such as Hou Yui and Ke Wenzhe, I do actually see somewhat uh, a decrease in attacks on Medigen because as people get vaccinated with Medigen, uh, as there are people that don't experience uh, fatal side effects and, and they are perfectly willing to get vaccinated, uh, this adds up to a lot of people. It's uh, by the people that are uh, registered as willing to be vaccinated, there's around 1 million people, and these people are voters. And so if you actually then are attacking Medigen and stigmatizing it and saying it's dangerous and you do have people that got vaccinated and are fine, then you might be alienating these people as voters. So I think the uh, KMT politicians that are needing to win elections, you might actually see a kind of decrease in the attacks on Medigen from them. Uh, but there'll still be this criticism of the process of the fact that Taiwan uh, did not pre uh, receive internationally approved vaccines. There'll be calls on how to ensure that people that got vaccinated with Medigen are able to travel abroad and have this recognized as a vaccine. Uh, that's been a question that's been raised because it's one of the uh, uh, kind of second wave of, of vaccines being developed. It's developed by Taiwan, which is not, for example, the U.S. in terms of global reach and power and so forth. And there's also been, uh, I mean, sometimes it is border on the conspiratorial, just uh, views that, for example, China could try to block recognition of Medigen within the World Health Organization. Um, either way, I think that it's also that um, uh, if getting the, the, the large and powerful countries such as the U.S. to sign on to supporting Medigen might have benefits to getting it recognized internationally. But then people want to travel internationally. Uh, there's also the fact that pan-blue politicians, they particularly want to use Medigen as an issue to try to win the support of young people, claiming that, well, the older people got vaccinated with other vaccines, so now the government is only leaving this untested, unsafe, domestically produced vaccine for young people, and that shows how little they care about young people. So you'll also see that kind of messaging, I think, from the KMT. And I think it is, it is on the government now uh, in terms of the onus to prove uh, that it is safe. I think deaths are expected after vaccination just because of things that happen. Uh, the government has been unusually... Uh, open in saying what the cause of death or thought uh, what the cause of death is thought to be ahead of time with these uh, safety concerns in mind, such as that do they were due to heart issues or uh, diabetes and those long-term conditions or drug usage. Um, but again, I think a lot of this will really depend on then just convincing the public. Moving on, but staying with the coronavirus. Well, the government this week said that the coronavirus pandemic has led to a sharp rise of income inequality. Now, according to the 2020 survey of family income and expenditure, although average household savings grew by a record annual 14.8% last year to 265,000 NT since 1994, the income gap between rich and poor households widened. Income 
quality here in Taiwan last year was the highest in eight years, with the top 20% of households earning 6.13 times the bottom 20%. Now, officials are attributing the sharp rise in income equality to the disadvantaged employees being hit hardest by the economic fallout from the coronavirus pandemic, as many of them have been asked to take unpaid leave. And that has resulted in average household spending declining by an annual 1.7% in 2020, registering the biggest drop on record. So, Ross, um, obviously this was predictable, but, I mean, that's quite a staggering difference there, 6.13 times the bottom 20%. Well, it's just a manifestation of a long-running issue here in Taiwan, you know, a gap between rich and poor, wage stagnation, especially for people at the lower ends of, of the, uh, the scale. And several several presidents and who knows how many premiers you know, over the last, say, 25 years uh, from both parties have not been able to address this issue. So you know, we constantly see some really positive economic news uh, the GDP forecast is really high. The stock market is doing well, and there's a bunch of companies in Taiwan that, that are doing really well uh, despite the pandemic, and that's specifically companies in, in IT, whether it's semiconductors or other, other parts that go into the products or the people who make the actual products and the consumer electronics and the office electri- uh, IT products that we use because of people working from home. Uh, but well, as you go down the scale, uh, you know, from, from white collar to blue collar, uh, and also the issue with younger people, uh, fresh graduates, very low wages, it's an issue that remains unresolved. And uh, clearly, uh, some of the factors that you identified uh, that arise from the pandemic have exasperated those issues that remain unresolved. Uh, I think there's some risk here, um, not, not necessarily political risk, uh, although you know, we'll certainly hear the Guomindam try to make an issue of this as we get into the local election or uh, the 2024 national election. Uh, but there will be a, a risk of brain drain again as as the pandemic situation hopefully improves. Uh, you know, and it wasn't that long ago that there was a previous wave of brain drain concerns. You know, it was around 2017, there was a lot of uh, media coverage of brain drain or, or Taiwan people moving to Hong Kong, China, Singapore, or other parts of the world. Uh, so there, there's a risk. It, uh, and then Taiwan will have a risk of losing some of its younger and more brilliant talent. And Brian, of course, there's been calls to rectify this by, of course, raising wages, raising the minimum wage, for example. Now, this week, of course, the Labour Minister said she does hope to see the minimum wage raised this year or into early next year. But, of course, that, Brian, is getting the kickback, basically, from the General General Chamber of Commerce for one group, which is voicing opposition to any proposals to hike the minimum wage, with its chairman saying now is not the right time to consider raising the minimum wage due to the local economic situation. Yeah, I think that will be the reaction sometimes from business, just not actually wanting to uh, improve the situation of workers, wanting to save money. Uh, I think business owners will perceive themselves as, as being hit, and so I think they will then perceive raising wages as something they don't really want to do. And the government has rolled out uh, stimulus measures, uh, loans, um, the stimulus vouchers, but I think that will not actually be enough because I think there are these long-standing inequalities in Taiwanese society, and, and they haven't been fixed. I think if there's anything that uh, COVID-19 has shown us around the world is that it exacerbates existing inequalities. Uh, whether that be anything from access to vaccines in many countries or to uh, just the gap between the rich and the poor. And I think this is bound to widen. Um, it's already the case that particularly young people or people that are blue-collar workers, there's not a lot of opportunities uh, to advance 
um, salaries are very low in Taiwan. There's the possibility of uh, the possibility of owning a home is very remote. You would have to not eat or drink for over a decade in order to do that to, to purchase a house uh, in in Taipei, for example. And I think this that, that hasn't changed because there's a need for larger systematic changes. I mean, COVID-19 provides a large shock to the economy of society uh, as well as politics. And sometimes maybe that can push for change. That's really to be seen in, in coming years. But in the meantime, I think that one will see this uh, income gap that's already bad getting worse. And I just think that the, me- the measures the government will take sometimes will just remain at the level of just handing out a bit of money and just hoping things go back to normal or some semblance of normal. Uh, I think that, that because this was an issue already before the current outbreak, this will just become worse afterwards. So, Ross, I mean, op- opposition to hikes in salaries and, of course, there, the government handing out money to people, which is not really going to fix the problem. Of course, it's not going to fix the problems. Never fixed the problem in the past. So, you know, Brian uh, referred to some programs. Uh, there are other, there are innumerable other subsidy programs. And you know, I was mentioning a few minutes ago uh, the challenge with with uh, you know, the stagnation with wages for fresh graduates. I mean, there's programs uh, to provide company subsidies uh, to increase the salaries of fresh graduates as well, but that only lasts uh, a limited period uh, of time. Uh, so, uh, handouts, uh, increasing the minimum wage. You know, that's not going to help much either because the minimum wage, uh, it might be blue-collar people, it's people in part-time work, uh, people working in retail jobs, F&B kind of jobs. Uh, They're not making careers out of those jobs, so increasing those wages isn't really going to dramatically change. Uh, There's some data from from other countries or states in the United States that shows increasing the the minimum wage was not the disaster that corporate leaders sometimes make it out to be and actually might have some beneficial long-term effects as well. But uh, we, we see time and again, and with both political parties, so regardless of which party controls the presidential office, that the, the political leadership remains very reluctant to take on the corporate leadership on this specific issue. And then they find some kind of happy medium, which, again, involves uh, some subsidies or some other kinds of program, government programs. So they stick it to the taxpayer instead of sticking it to the corporate leaders. Uh, but uh, you know, we, we've been talking about this for a few minutes. We've been talking about it in the past. The problem is nobody really has uh, an ideal solution. You know, it might be that uh, you know, we really should be thinking about economic growth. And yeah, we're going to have really good numbers this year, but that, that's a headline number. It's limited to, to mostly to the high-tech industry. It's not very broad across the economy. And uh, I think the solution lies there, right? How to create a, a better, sustainable uh, economic and investment environment here in Taiwan. And we should, we should be thinking about that, not just us, but policymakers as well, um, over the medium to long term. And I think that part of the conversation is missing. And moving on from the coronavirus now, while President Tsai Ing-wen was smiling for the cameras as she got the Medigen shot on Monday, she was also coming under a barrage of criticism from the KMT for failing to attend an annual ceremony commemorating a battle on Jingmen. Now, Jingmen County Magistrate Yang Jun-woo voiced his displeasure on not only Tsai's absence, but also the failure of any cabinet members at all to turn out for the ceremony, marking the 63rd anniversary of the second Taiwan Strait crisis. Yang described it as being wholly unacceptable that not one central government official bothered to travel to Jingmen and he went on to urge the central government to reflect on the meaning of the battle. Now the memorial is held on August the 23rd every year at the Tai Wushan Cemetery on Jingmen and Tsai attended the memorial in 2019 and 2020. Now a presidential office spokesperson on Sunday had announced that Tsai had no plans to visit Jingmen this year due to the need to limit travel to offshore islands amid the coronavirus pandemic and instead of attending 
attending the artillery bombardment commemoration ceremony on Jingman. Tsai visited the Armour Bureau's Material Production Centre and the Air Force Air Defence and Artillery Command. So, Brian, do you think Tsai should have gone to Jingman to commemorate the battle? So Tai did make comments on the uh, commemoration. Uh, she posted on, uh, on it on Facebook and, and uh, so forth. But I think that particularly with uh, politicians, sometimes there's a demand for people to go there and to make sure their face and, and that sort of thing. Uh, this was also quite interesting during the COVID-19 pandemic because Tai and other government officials have justified not going on the basis of limiting travel, but then this will come under fire. Um, sometimes there's a call for people to go to, for example, places that are hit by COVID to express support, so that could be dangerous, etc. And so uh, the KMT has, on the other hand, tried to leverage on this. Uh, the, the KMT is strong in Jingmen and so forth. Um, historically, and as a result, uh, Eric Chu, Johnny Chang, etc. will will make a big deal of this. Um, I think it's quite interesting this year that this uh, became such a large issue because in past years, it hasn't as much, and uh, it's not a significant anniversary of the start of the second Taiwan Straits uh, crisis, for example. It's not a, a five-year anniversary. It's not a 10-year anniversary. Uh, but a lot of this really, I think, is due to the KMT wanting to tout its uh, past record of defending Taiwan. Um, this particularly came up after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The KMT tried to tout its record defending Taiwan while claiming the U.S. to be unreliable. And I think this is the reason why uh, the uh, second Taiwan Straits crisis became such a big issue uh, this year in commemorating it. Um, it's interesting, actually, that the phrasing in which uh, that differs or how Tsai expressed uh, commemorating this versus the KMT, where Tsai phrases as the Taiwanese people defending themselves, whereas the KMT defends, uh, well, raises as the ROC and the uh, KMT leadership protecting Taiwan in the sense. Um, but I think that particularly as there are concerns regarding demon and political loyalty because of the fact it's so close to China, uh, I do think the DPP needs to maintain uh, a stronger appearance of support for Jingmen because of those concerns that people in Jingmen might break off from Taiwan because they are remote from Taiwan, uh, they are geographically quite close to China, and this could actually prove an issue for security concerns. Uh, it's literally the front line in that sense if there is a Chinese invasion, and there's always these concerns about what happens if, if there's a part of the population that is, is loyal to China in that sense. And of course, Ross Tsai, in her comments about the artillery bombardment, did say that unity needs to be withheld in Taiwan if Taiwan wishes to fight an aggressor. But by not turning out to the Jingmen event, do you think she was not showing unity? Well, we should be, I don't know, we should talk about Taiwan and Jinmen, and we should be fair to Mazu and Pongu as well, or she's just talking about Taiwan Island. Uh, yeah, raises some interesting uh, historical issues there. Uh, but uh, Brian, 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 come on. Let, let, let's talk about the core issue here and why this became a controversy. As vice president, I decided to go there uh, in 2019 and 2020. One was 2019 was before the election. 2020, who went with her? Right, I believe uh, AIT, then AIT director Christensen went with her. So uh, you know, it, it, she was able to make good politics out of it this year. There's no need to make good politics out of it. You know, the excuse about COVID-19 and, and pandemic or preve prevention, I mean, come on. I mean, President Tsai is traveling uh, fairly regularly around Taiwan Island. Uh, Brian mentioned some of the places she went to uh, within the past few days, and she brings a big delegation with her to the hospital to get vaccinated. So, uh, you know, this, we can't travel. Excuse is just totally not not legitimate. We can't travel because it's safer for a pandemic. I mean, come on. You know, she she takes her charter flight. Uh, you know, she did, she can take a team of people who've been vaccinated. Uh, so I mean, that is just not an excuse. So for whatever reason, she had higher priorities on on August twenty third than than going going to Jinmen. Perhaps the, the the best solution here would be if she had never gone at all, then it wouldn't have become, you know, this kind of precedent that you know, she went for two consecutive years. It's like, oh, why do you go that year and that year, but not the following year? Um, 
So uh, it's too bad. It's, it's gotten politicized. I, I guess, you know, looking back, it would have been better if uh, whoever was the president, Ma Ying-jeou, Chen Shui-bian, Li Dong-hui, and, and, and Zhang Jingo before that, uh, had gone every year to the commemoration. Uh, but, but they did it. And then, you know, again, President Tsai decided to go a couple of years, and then she doesn't go, and it becomes a, a, a political issue, which is really unfortunate. Anyway, I have to take a short break here now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And Taiwan made international headlines this past week after the Coast Guard Administration found 154 cats in 62 cages on a fishing boat that was intercepted before being escorted into Kaohsiung Harbour. Now, the Council of Agriculture had to euthanise the cats because they are being smuggled from China, where rabies is endemic. And needless to say, they posed a risk to Taiwan. Now, the cats included breeds such as the Russian Blue, Ragdoll, Persian American Short, Hair and a British short hair, and they were put down by vets at the Bureau of Animal and Plant Health Inspection. Now, although authorities said the decision to euthanize the cats was in accordance with the statute for prevention and control of infectious animal diseases, animal rights advocates still argued that it was inhumane and they called on the government to be more flexible in handling such cases. Now, of course, President Tsai Ing wen loves her cats, and she took to Facebook to say that she was saddened by the decision to put the felines down and said that an amendment to relevant laws should be considered so that smuggled animals can be treated more humanely. Now also this week opposition party lawmakers joined the Council of Agriculture in calling for amendments to laws aimed at increasing penalties for animal smugglers. And Agriculture Minister Chen Ji Jong said his office is planning to work with the Ministry of Justice to draft an amendment to the Smuggling Penalty Act that would raise the maximum prison sentence for smugglers to above the current seven years. Chen also said that the Council of Agriculture is planning to impose a fixed fine of three million NT on unlicensed animal vendors who sell such animals from unknown sources in a way to deter the smuggling of said animals. Now the Kaohsiung District Court on Thursday ordered a former Coast Guard officer and one other person detained as part of the investigation into the attempted smuggling of cats into Taiwan from China. So Brian, smuggling cats, the cats were sadly euthanised. Many people upset about that. But of course... More people might be upset about how this smuggling operation came to be with a mem- former member of the Coast Guard. Um, yeah, that's right. I think there will be concerns about that, particularly uh, smuggling operations involving members of the government, uh, people that work in the Coast Guard or border controls or whatever, uh, have come up in recent years, uh, whether pertaining to legal animals being illegally smuggled into Taiwan, uh, cigarettes on a flight that Taiwan took, for example, and etc. Um, but what's interesting is that in this case, uh, 154 cats being euthanized could become actually a national-level political issue. It became something that President Tsai commented on, as well as Premier Su Chen Chang and Cultural Mayor Chen Si Mai. Uh, and this was also leveraged on to attack the Thai administration by the KMT, including people like Ko Yo Yi uh, and etc. Um, just did something else leveraged on. I think because of the fact that um, people are upset seeing these cats euthanized. There's a lot of animal rights issues in Taiwan that have come up in recent years where rather small cases, even, for example, this one cat being killed by a student with mental health issues on National Taiwan University could lead to national outcry. Um, there have been actually past cases in which animals that were smuggled into Taiwan were euthanized. Uh, there was a case a few years ago with 50 chinchillas that were euthanized, but this did not lead to any national outcry. It's a question to me 
why it became such a big issue this time, where it hasn't in the past. Part of it's maybe just due to social media or, or possibly the fact that news media explicitly reported that the animals were being euthanized, whereas in previous incidents it was a little vague about the fate of these animals. Um, but the government's also been criticized then for inflexibility. Uh, Chen Mai and uh, Su Junshang, for example, have defended this as a, a necessary but unfortunate measure to prevent um, just uh, uh, animals from being endangered in Taiwan by diseases being brought in, brought in, which is also, I think, particularly salient during uh, COVID-19. However, uh, animal rights groups uh, had already said that they'd be willing to pay for the cost of quarantining and treating uh, these animals if they did have diseases. And despite this, uh, despite that also, the law does have measures for uh, quarantining animals um, and not actually just euthanizing them. Uh, this was not carried out. And so the government's uh, attacked on that front. Uh, I think also part of it is that government bureaus sometimes do not want to back down in the face of animal efficacy groups because they, they're uh, perhaps afraid that if this, they do this once and they back down and allow for a special exception, with future cases in which this takes place, their authority will be infringed upon and they'll have to go through this complicated process in which they have to deal with the public and the uh, public that is upset about this uh, prospect in the future. And so I think this... Uh, this controversy is probably not going to go away anytime soon now with uh, pan-blue legislators in particular calling for stronger legislation for animal rights and, and so forth. Uh, well, the government is going to back down because they're going to change the law. So uh, there really wasn't much flexibility. Uh, quarantining uh, inbound animals, that's generally when someone like me or Brian come back from a, a foreign country with our favorite pet and it goes into quarantine. Uh, kind of like how humans have to go into quarantine now because of COVID-19. Uh, but smuggled animals, you know, the law that is, is pretty clear that, uh, you know, they, unfortunately they get euthanized. Uh, and that's why, uh, you know, we saw like this kind of legalistic explanation from certain politicians. Well, but that's what the law says. Uh, we have to do it. Uh, it's to safeguard Taiwan and it's too bad. Uh, but that's what the law says. Uh, so uh, I think the better question is, why was the law written in this way? Because other modern, uh, sophisticated, highly developed countries uh, are able to accommodate this kind of situation, you know, even if it smuggles or stray uh, animals, put them in quarantine and then look for adoption or other, or other measures, uh, rather than uh, just have a law that says smuggled animals go, get euthanized. Uh, but you know, to Brian's uh, first point about uh, attracting a lot of media attention, I mean, that's not just uh, you know, something that happens because of social media and how these things spread so quickly, but we also have to keep in mind that Taiwan's a small country, so you know, it's not a surprise that these kinds of stories will, will actually attract an enormous amount of coverage very, very quickly. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why it gets attention, though. I think uh, particularly now with uh, uh, just attention on the issue, whenever there's cases of animals being slugged in Taiwan, this will come again as a precedent. Are these animals going to be euthanized, or will there be other measures that are taken? And I think that's, that's uh, going to come up. I mean, people are usually less upset when it's an animal that's uh, being consumed um, by humans normally, such as pigs or, or whatever, that they are put down or, or called um, for safety concerns, for, for concerns about disease spreading. But when it comes to these animals that are... Uh, that without humans raising pets, then the people are, are upset. And particularly cats are a common pet uh, compared to, for example, chinchillas, which are, are relatively rare. Um, and so that, that leads to uh, people becoming angry. It's also quite interesting because euthanasia is, uh, has become an issue in Taiwan politically in the past uh, because of the fact that there was um, legislation introduced in 2015 uh, originally after, after a backlash against the fact that animals in shelters were allowed 12 days before they were euthanized. Uh, this led euthanasia to be phased out gradually. And so this was actually something that Tsai referenced in one of her election ads, even, uh, in the lead-up to 2016 elections. And so it's interesting that this come up. But then um, I think the government 
has not really tread sensitively on this issue. It did not really think about the fact that this could become something I used against it. And so I, I also, it's, it's kind of funny because I don't really think of the KMT as a party particularly strong in animal rights, but now suddenly they are really leveraging on this issue um, to tax tie, which, which they do on, on many other issues. Um, but then it remains to be seen the kind of dialogue that will happen back and forth. At least the Council of Agriculture has expressed to animal advocacy groups that's willing to, to talk with them and figure out next steps to proceed in the future to avoid these kind of situations. And Ross, of course, a former Coast Guard officer has been arrested and detained in connection with the case. Well, as, uh, as Brian mentioned earlier, you know, this is uh, uh, it's terrible. I but there's still a certain level of corruption in, in Taiwan's law enforcement agencies. I recently um, uh, uh, an investigator who, who had been involved in uh, drug cases for many years was arrested for actually uh, taking some of the evidence and reselling it. Uh, we, we have uh, un- an unfortunate innumerable list of military officers who are uh, in, under investigation or prosecution. And putting aside the China stuff or even, you know, like espionage, but uh, for graft related to construction projects at military facilities. Uh, so uh, this, this is just something that uh, you know, we'd like to see uh, more action, uh, stricter penalty. You know, Brian mentioned possibility of higher penalties for, for smuggling uh, animals. That, that'll probably be part of the, the package of legal revisions that I, I think both parties, I wouldn't put this on say, one party, it, it's both parties. They're just going to try and appeal to you know, get, get public goodwill uh, by supporting changes to the law to, to allow quarantine and adoption for smuggled animals, increase the penalties. But when it comes to the penalties, uh, if there's no enforcement or uh, the cases go on for years and years, as criminal cases often do in Taiwan, uh, it's not really going to change uh, this aspect. But, yeah, it would be good if we could reduce the amount of culture in Taiwan's uh, corruption or the corruption culture in Taiwan's law enforcement agencies. And, of course, Brian's smuggling came up also this week when uh, meat products from Vietnam were found to have traces of African swine fever, which, of course, has kicked off island-wide searches of several locations, 1,300 locations, in fact, island-wide. And the government is now looking for products that have been illegally smuggled from Vietnam. Um, yeah, that's right. The concern is that this will eventually end up in pig feet and that this will lead to the spread of diseases in Taiwan's uh, very lucrative pork industry. And so that's, that's part of the concern. Um, just African swine fever, there are a lot of measures taken to prevent it from entering the country uh, before the, the outbreak. Um, just at the border, for example, people would have to uh, throw away any meat products. Uh, there's increased instruction of inbound travelers to search for meat products, particularly from China and Southeast Asia. Um, and so this is a concern now because of uh, these illegally imported meats. Um, I think that what's interesting is that there's a lot of search of, uh, for example, stores run by migrant workers or markets and so forth. Uh, there's some possibility there where I think particularly um, a specific national demographic will be associated with smuggled meat, and that could lead to uh, policing practices that, for example, infringe on the rights of migrant workers or immigrants, etc. Um, that's somewhat of a matter of concern. Um, but it's interesting, too, because just uh, after all these efforts, I think, to... Uh, to actually make sure that there was not swine fever uh, to get rid of, for example, foot and mouth disease, then the pork industry has to deal with these kind of issues uh, regarding quarantine. Um, and this occurs at the same time as COVID-19, in which there's strengthened quarantine measures to prevent COVID from getting into Taiwan. And so I think uh, these kind of issues regarding uh, inspections of food products are going to be increasing the case, uh, increasing an issue. Uh, for example, there's also the concern about COVID entering through frozen food products. 
into Taiwan. And so what, the, what measures the government takes to step this up is, is, is a question. Um, uh, as we just talked about animals um, and, and euthanasia, I mean, there's usually not as much opposition to uh, pigs being put down. I mean, there's calls of, for example, millions of pigs just to get rid of foot and mouth disease in, in past decades, and that doesn't lead to backlash. Um, but then it, it's actually very difficult just then to uh, ensure that, that once you take all these drastic measures to get rid of a disease, that it doesn't enter back into the uh, livestock. And of course, Ross, this operation, this operation well, they, they found a warehouse in New Taipei where large numbers of meat products from Vietnam was found. The woman, one of the women they arrested and detained said that she was employed by a Vietnamese company to oversee the warehouse. This doesn't just sound like a small smuggling operation. It sounds like one that's been going on for some time and it's quite large. It makes you wonder what else is going on. It hasn't been caught yet. Uh, you know, to, to be fair, I, I think uh, within their capabilities, um, the, the Council of Agriculture or other re- relevant agencies try to do the best they can, but you know, they're, they're up against some other problems, like we mentioned. Uh, there could be issues with the, the Coast Guard or other agencies um, responsible for border control, uh, limited resources, uh, a large number of people who are frankly just comfortable um, buying illegal products. And then the same would apply with, with the smuggle cats as well. You know, one of the interesting things about this conversation is you know, we're talking about products at vastly different ends of kind of like the pricing points or you know, who's, who's, who are the customers and who are the willing customers to buy something that, that they probably know is an illegal product. So you know, we might have uh, you know, foreign labor, uh, people buying who buy the, the, the meat products. Uh, on the other end of the scale, we have uh, fairly well-to-do people who are going to be buying those cats, probably knew the cat's uh, provenance, was a bit uh, dubious. And, uh, you know, there's some people in the chain there, you know, retail stores, uh, pet stores, uh, vet, vets, uh, who are really looking the other way and participating in something, uh, um, you know, because well, they're all making money. Uh, so, uh, you know, we have some serious cultural issues here, whether it's with uh, certain government agencies or with the population uh, at large. And before we go this week, Taiwan's top envoy to the United States, Xiaobi Kim, will be throwing out the first pitch at the New York Mets Taiwan Day this coming Sunday at City Field. Now, Xiao is the first Taiwanese representative, top representative to the US, to throw the pitch out at City Field. Taiwan's former envoy to the US, Stanley Gao, threw the ceremonial first pitch in 2016 at Fenway Park when the Boston Red Sox played the Kansas City Royals, and again in 2019 at Dodger Stadium, where the LA Dodgers played the San Diego Padres. Now, the DPP is describing Xiao's first pitch as being a symbol for the unshakable friendship between Taiwan and the United States and says the Mets event will boost recognition of Taiwan. Now, the Mets, if you're interested, have been working with the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in New York on the annual Taiwan Heritage Day since 2005. And the previous first pitches at the event have included Taiwanese-American television personality Janet Sher. Taiwanese YouTuber Tsai Ge, movie director Ang Lee, golfer Yanni Tsai, and former Academia Sinica president and Nobel Prize laureate Li yuan So, Ross, there you go. Odd group of people there to be throwing out the first pitch at a Mets game, but apparently it's quite popular. Well, speaking as a native New Yorker and a lifelong Mets fan who's lived here in Taiwan for many years, I have to be frank. Very few people care about this. Uh, the, the, the attendance uh, for this game is typically not high. Uh, according to media reports, uh, when this event has occurred in recent years, the number of uh, people who come as, uh, from, say, Taiwanese-American groups 
uh, is, is, is not very large either. The Mets are not having a, a, such a great season, so you know, it's probably not going to be a sellout. There's not going to be a lot of people uh, paying. You, know, you say like a, you know, a golfer with, with roots in Taiwan or Ang Lee or, or and just throwing out a first pitch. Look, most, most people attending the baseball game went to see the baseball game and see the Mets and whoever the Mets are playing. They didn't come to attend the Taiwanese night or day. Uh, so uh, whatever spin the Taiwan government, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, wants to put on this, uh, ultimately it's really just not a big deal. So, uh, I, 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 again, I, even as someone who lives in Taiwan but is a Mets fan, I just hope the Mets win. I don't care who throws out the first pitch, but hopefully uh, Representative Xia won't bounce the first pitch, so hopefully she's practicing and uh, she, you know, she'll throw a, a really good fastball that will reach the catcher uh, without bouncing or hopping. Well, after Ross put a bit of a damper on the whole thing there, Brian, I should say something completely different to you and go in a completely different direction. Of course, City Field and the Mets apparently is in an area of New York near Flushing, yeah? That's right. Okay, now, 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 let me go. Well, apparently, oh. this area of New York is sort of, well, it's sort of the, the Taiwan area of New York. Yeah, so I think uh, that's what, where the actual significance of this lies, in that this is more a cultural activity for a group with a substantial immigrant population in, in New York, which, you know, I also trace my origins to. Um, and so I think that doesn't really have that political meaning that the government would like to spit it as. Uh, for example, there's been the claim that Chabi Kim was referred to as Taiwan's representative that does not have, uh, this has not occurred before. That may be true, but I think that's not the meaning of it for, for most people. It's just throwing a baseball, and I think for the Mets, it just outreached to a immigrant group in, in New York that is prominent and, and around and, and so forth. And I think that's about all there is to it. Um, I was I was amused, though, that they, uh, Tsai Ing-wen did actually record a video for this where she's wearing a Mets jersey. Uh, Tsai, once in a while, will, will step out of her usual uh, outfit to do something more fun. Uh, for example, she was wearing a lot of Hawaiian shirts in the lead-up to 2020 elections to seem more fun. Uh, and this hasn't really happened since, but apparently this is big enough that Tsai would wear a Mets jersey for that. So if there's anything that's coming out of it, I, I think maybe it's that. <laughs> But what about what about Chinese immigrants from China in this part of New York? Could they be offended? Well, I, I don't think the issue there is is this part of New York. I mean, New York City is is big, but it's not so huge. So you know, within a few miles, a few minutes drive, uh, you, you have uh, other parts, uh, whether it's in Queens or in Brooklyn or in Manhattan, where, where you have more diverse Chinese communities. So you have people from uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong and or mainland, yeah, historically Flushing has had more Taiwanese and parts of Brooklyn have had more uh, people from the mainland, but, but that's, that's changing. I mean, as you get into second or third generation of Taiwanese immigrants, you know, the children, the grandchildren of people who might, may have moved to the U.S. in the 60s or the 70s, uh, you know, typical you know, upward mobility, they're moving out of Flushing and moving into uh, areas further away in the suburbs, uh, you know, the town where I grew up in. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, very few uh, Taiwanese or Chinese or Koreans, and now it has many because they've moved out from places like Flushing. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't, I'd be careful about overemphasizing, you know, the, you know, that this is a big deal even for the Taiwanese community nearby Flushing. And we should also keep in mind that the Mets and many other baseball teams, they have uh, cultural or ethnic affinity days, not just for Taiwanese, but they have it for uh, Dominicans or, uh, and Irish and, and, and several other ethnic groups. So this is just one among many. But I think there's a real risk. You know, the Mets have a new owner who, who took control of the team before this season. Uh, and somebody might say to him, like, look, there's more money to be made by appealing 
appealing uh, to to fans in China than 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 fans or potential fans in Taiwan. So we should see what what kind of reaction uh, there's going to be from China's state media after this event, and uh, if the Mets owner decides that there's more money to be made uh, in China, we have to keep in mind that just a few minutes away from where the Mets play, the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, have their arena, and uh, we know who they're owned by. They're owned by a guy from Taiwan but who makes most of his money in China and uh, was very uh, clear in what he thought about when, when the Houston Rockets executive uh, tweeted his support for the protesters in Hong Kong. Uh, so I think there's definitely something to watch whether or not this event will be sustained. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I have a question. I think it quickly that depends on if uh, the event actually comes under scrutiny of, uh, for example, uh, people that are, are up, uh, up in arms about these kind of issues normally. And I think that normally it hasn't because I don't think it's a too big of a deal. Uh, for example, it's quite interesting that Andrew Yang, who ran for mayor in New York City and is Taiwanese-American, never actually referred to himself as Taiwanese-American. He would always refer more generally to being Asian-American and having parents from Asia, although specifically that part of Asia was Taiwan. And the reason for that is his political calculation. Uh, he did not want to offend uh, Chinese-Americans or, or Chinese immigrants in New York City as a voting demographic because of the potential for that to not work out well for his electoral prospects, which did not work out well in general uh, by the end of the day. But that's actually quite significant, I think, in terms of how this kind of thing plays out. And these issues will only accentuate, I think, as, as time goes on. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.